you could only have six coin-operated machines in a building. <laughs> uh, so they came up all these creative ways but, to keep But you could have kids. slot machines. Well, yeah. yeah. You know, That's... doing that and fleecing people that way. But yeah, you can only have six arcade machines uh, together in a single space. That's crazy. Welcome to Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call, 224-484-7733 or go to the GameDevAdvice.com website. I have a great episode for you today, so let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Hey everybody, I've got Doc Mack on today's show from Galloping Ghost Productions. It is the biggest arcade in the world, and he's also developing an arcade game of his own, uh, has a martial arts studio, all kinds of cool things. I also want to do a shout out to a listener in Australia. He left a review, another five star, and said, interview an arcade machine collector or someone who runs one of those pub arcades. This came from I-A-T-B-P-T-E-O-T-P. Thank you for the idea. And here's the episode. Hey, Doc, how's it going? Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about your uh, current role right now there at Galloping Ghost? Um, so we've we've kind of expanded everything, and uh, we've got Galloping Ghost Productions, which was our initial company, which mm-hmm. I'm uh, the lead designer on Dark Presence. Um, but have, as everything else has expanded, it's kind of changed things a bit where everybody else has kind of pulled up in different roles. Uh, we've got the Galloping Ghost Arcade. Uh, Galloping Ghost Reproductions, Galloping mm-hmm. Ghost Gamma, uh, which is a gym and martial mm-hmm. arts school. Okay. Um, Galloping Ghost Garage, and then most recently, Galloping Ghost Pinball. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it was a year ago when I was there for the Combat Con 25, and that's, uh, you've added a lot of stuff. That's, uh, you've been really busy the last year, because it was about a year ago, right? Like last September was Combat yep. Con? Yeah. That was the, well, that was the last. Shang Tsung's Fight Night was our last okay. one. For listeners not familiar with Galloping Ghost, because this is a worldwide audience, and the idea actually came to me um, after reading it from a, uh, a reviewer in Australia. Can you tell me about like uh, Galloping Ghost and how many arcade games you have? And So the Galloping Ghost Arcade, we're currently at 731 arcade machines. Wow. Largest arcade in the world. Uh, yeah. We keep adding a new game every week with our uh, Monday mystery game. <laughs> That's great. Um, so 731. Um, how many square feet is that? I mean, how, how many? Uh, I'm just trying to figure out the logistics of all that. That's crazy. Right now, I think we're about 16,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we expanded in November, and uh, we just found out a couple of days ago our, our neighbors abruptly left, and now we're taking over that building and adding another probably 3,000 square feet. And then uh, the pinball section... Uh, how many pins are in there? Uh, that's in a separate building, uh, uh-huh. two blocks to the east. But currently, we have thirty-seven pinball machines. Okay, yeah, that's great. And and there are so many pinball legends here in the Chicago area that, um, yeah, I'm sure you can reach out to those folks and talk to them and have them buy and do autographs and all those kind of things. So yeah, absolutely. It's been so fortunate uh, just being near Chicago. You've got so many video game designers and developers and pinball and. Mm-hmm. The, uh, history of the area for video games and pinball is just perfect so yeah right i mean you know legends like george gomez and pinball and, and brian eddy and greg frares uh all friends of mine that have worked in some of the biggest pinballs in the world and um yeah that's that's great they're all here they're local for sure um so so tell me how did you get in the arcade and and also, you know, video game dev industry, because you are working on Dark Presence. Can you kind of speak to both of those points? So, like, growing up, I was, I always knew I wanted to work in video games. And uh, mm-hmm. 
design and develop and it was such a different time and so hard to get into the scene it it was actually uh i had wanted uh, and dreamed of working at uh midway and i remember just a chance encounter with ed boone uh he came into a babbage's store that i was working at ah, babbage's yeah i remember those yeah oh yeah and uh i asked him i'm like how can i go work at midway and work on games like mortal Kombat?" Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, it's so tough. You got to know somebody. And I'm like, well, I, I know you know. I like, <laughs> how, how, can, how can you help me out here? Right. And he was just like, oh, it's really tough, really tough. And I'm sure he got that so much at the time. Yeah. And just the way he's like, yeah, I, I don't know, and kind of went off. And mm-hmm. it kind of left me like, well, I'm, I'm going to do this. If, he, if I'm not getting help, I'll just do it myself. And that was kind of uh, when I decided that I was going to open my own production company and okay. didn't, didn't know anything about anything and really just started learning from the ground up and uh, hmm. got into every aspect uh, and met some good people that helped along the way. And mm-hmm. that was pretty much the start of it. It was... Uh, wow. And what year was that, roughly? Uh, 94. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, you're at this 25 years now. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> we should probably put something out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've you've been busy with 731 arcade machines, also, and uh, martial arts, and uh, all the other projects you've got going on. So yeah, um, no, that's great. And and then the arcade side, like, when did that start, and what what were your first couple games? So. We opened up uh, in 2010, August 13th, Friday the 13th of 2010. Mm. And building up to it, we had been working on Dark Presence for the longest time. And about, we rebooted in 2004, uh, mm. just as uh, the game looked so dated at that point. So mm-hmm. we started everything over. And in about 2007, there's a company that opened up called Orcade uh, that was an arcade tracker. And um, we started looking as like, okay, well, we have to find places to sell games to. Mm -hmm. So we started to go to any place that had arcade games, like movie theaters, existing arcades, Dave and Buster's, Mm -hmm. bars, pool halls, whatever we could find. Yeah. And it really was... uh, every place we went, the games were in bad shape and to the point where we were cataloging what games they had, but at the same time we were seeing all these problems and uh, it was, Hey, we're gonna uh, like these arcades are closing left and right. Yep. There's not going to be anything left for us to release this game to. Mm. Um, So we started doing anything that we could possibly do. We were offering to fix arcade machines for all these places at no charge. And uh, the resistance to it was astonishing. It was like, nobody cared if their machines worked or not. Really? And like, I could not find a functioning Mortal Kombat two cabinet in all of Chicago. That's crazy. Wow. I had no idea. So it, that led me to write this business model and uh, we, had it sitting there and it uh was basically went back to working on dark presence we were still in our filming studio at that point Mm -hmm. um but then in 2010 uh just everything lined up and there's a a batch of 114 machines uh out for sale in iowa Hmm. and all the production guys just got in a truck uh, we found a. I, we were having problems initially um, getting into a place because there's so many laws on the books about where arcades can be and how uh, many arcades can be in a specific building. Right, machines. Yeah. Huh. And uh, but everything just miraculously lined up within a few days, and um, my landlord that rented us our filming studio had this building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we picked up the batch of 114 machines for about $5,000. And that was really the start of it. It was like, yeah, we're opening an arcade now as well as doing 
the design on this game. Wow. I, I remember um, up in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin was Tin Pan Alley. Did you ever go up to that place? Uh, no, no. It was right in downtown Lake Geneva because you had talked about they didn't care the machines were broken. It was, it was an amazing time machine back to like the mid to late 80s with all the games, but like half of them were broken. And it was, yeah. it was so frustrating because you walk in there and you're like, oh man, I want to play Quicks or I, I want to play Crazy Climber. And it was either broken or the controls were all uh, hosed. And um, yeah, I used to take my sons there and we used to try and find the games that did work just to check it out. And then, you know, they went away and uh, they sell t-shirts not there now or something, but it's, yeah. it's in downtown Lake Geneva. So it's just kind of a touristy thing. But yeah, um, I did see all those great games and a lot of them were in a state of disrepair. And um, I just remember thinking, yeah, these are all going to go away unless, unless there's a business here that comes along or, or something like that. And I remember even joking with an old Turbo Graphics friend of mine like 25 years ago, like, oh, it would be a great idea to open an arcade and serve beer because like everyone that grew up playing those games can now drink and go to an arcade. Um, yeah. And you look at the explosion with you know stuff like barcades. And I know you're different with um, uh, no alcohol and just uh, a one flat fee and all those great things, that, the way you guys do it there. But I um, kind of totally see that how that kind of evolved. Um, and for people that are not familiar with Dark Presence, can you just describe a little bit about that arcade game so they know what it's what it's about? So Dark Presence is kind of a classic style 2D one-on-one fighting game. Uh, we had mm-hmm. gone back and filmed all the actors, uh, much like MK, Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3. Um, but we really wanted to... We didn't just want to try to make a Mortal Kombat or a Street Fighter clone. Uh, so we've tried to add a lot of unique elements to the game. Cool. We've had such a amazing fighting community around here, and the guys on staff um, at productions, most of them used to play for Team GGA. So they're mm-hmm. pro players that have really taken the game to a new level of uh, just the balance to the game and the play mechanics. So, no, that's great, and that's yeah, that's key. You have to have those expert players and people that. Can tell a difference with you know frame rate and reaction time and, and, and making sure things feel tight and they, they place they play well because you know people there's I remember there's a bunch of companies after Mortal Kombat came out that everyone thought it was just a gold rush he's put two characters on screen fighting and the money sure. would pour in and it's like nope sorry uh, that didn't didn't work uh, you, you got to have that um, it's about the feel and the gameplay and the frame rate and all those kind of things all all working together. For sure. It's interesting talking, again, we have so many people that have worked on games. Mm -hmm. Um, I I almost feel that games are a little bit over-designed now with the mindset of uh, four pro players. So we kind of had a a balance. um, Like just, you talk to the old developers and most of them never played anything. Like mm-hmm. video games uh, weren't their passion. They made them for a living, mm-hmm. but they never played them. And you have people making these amazing games and not understanding the nuances and intricacies that are there mm-hmm. uh, that just happen naturally without right. it being over-designed. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's a good point too, right? Yeah, if you if you cater too much to a niche audience and um... – you don't think about everyday players. It, it could be a frustrating game too. So yeah, no, sure. that's, that's, that's a good point. So what do you wish you had known when you'd started? Um, it's, it's kind of funny when we opened the arcade, we were on such a, uh, a good role uh, to having the game finished. And I think had we known that the arcade was going to shift and cause such of a uh, time delay, I, I'm glad we opened the arcade, but I wonder if we would have at that time. I uh, see. Right. Just because it, it's delayed Dark Presence's release by years and years. So. You're right. You probably had to change game engines and do all kinds of things too, right? Just to Yeah, we had stuff. had uh, two proprietary engines that we had created, and we worked with those mm-hmm. for years. And because we were so split, um, the the programming team there's an out-of-house programming team and our in-house artists and designers it mm-hmm. wasn't uh fully cohesive yeah. and there wasn't the focus that needed 
make dark presence come to uh, a completed state quicker. Mm -hmm. So once, once we separated productions in the arcade and uh, the, everything was staffed separately, it, it moved a lot smoother. Cool. So what kind of advice would you give someone looking to open an arcade or, or create their own game? So for opening arcades, we, we've helped 29 arcades open worldwide. Oh, wow. Uh, we share our business model and um, we, we show places how to fix things and source games, how to mm -hmm. negotiate buying and selling games. That's great. Um, right now, uh, we've got about 175 people talking really? about opening places. Hmm. And it's, it's caused such a shift in the, um, like the secondary market for buying and selling arcade games because everybody's trying to open right now uh, places in Japan and Australia oh. and Spain and all uh -huh. over the U.S. So it's a much more difficult time. Like we're seeing about 80,000 people through the door a year now. Really? Yep. Wow. <laughs> it's astonishing people traveling in from from out of the country and yeah. it's seven days a week there's people from out of state and from everywhere yeah it's like a destination now right i mean i mean it's it's like a pilgrimage because you've also um had all the world records was like 140 or something have been set there on different machines and, and yeah the the scoring side of things uh has really brought a lot more awareness and uh, the the players that do these just outrageous accomplishments that we try to put the spotlight them on them as well. So mm -hmm. it, it definitely brings players in from everywhere. Right. It, it's one of those between the games, the industry people and the players, it, it's really got something for everybody. So, yeah. Wasn't there somebody, um, and I apologize. I don't follow this super closely, but somebody that had gotten busted for, breaking a record, but then they had um, uh, been shown to, to have modified the, uh, the cabinet or something? Yeah, uh, that was Billy Mitchell. who Ah, uh, the bad uh, guy from King of Kong. King, King of Kong, of Kong. Yep. yeah, yeah. Um, in that, uh, and we've got kind of a little bit different take on it, and, and we okay. know Billy, and uh, he's played at the arcade, and honestly not the villain that he's made out to be in, in the movie. Mm. Um, to me, so Orcade, place that was tracking, it was an arcade locator. Mm -hmm. About a year into us being open, they added a high scoring element and they became uh, a scoring house, much like Twin Galaxies. Right, which I'm familiar with Twin Galaxies, yeah. So over the years, uh, that's become such a huge element. And the guy who created the site, David Hernley, made a great site, but we needed it to do so much more. So mm -hmm. about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, we purchased his company and okay. just ramped it all up. And it, it really forced us in, to focus on scoring and try to fix all the problems. So mm -hmm. scoring is something we take uh, incredibly seriously and yeah. That whole controversy with Billy Mitchell was interesting because everybody vilified Billy mm -hmm. instead of the scoring house. And uh, mm. Twin Galaxies has changed hands many times, but to have a player in control of the machine and setting his own settings and for the scoring house not to recognize that seems so... Ah, uh, uh, that's a good point. ...problematic. It's like... That's what the scoring house is supposed to be adjudicating, mm -hmm. and I'm whether or not he knew. Did he know? I don't. I'm not sure. Probably mm -hmm. uh, there's slight differences, but hmm. who knows? Yeah. Uh, but there's definitely fault to the scoring house. And again, Twin Galaxies changed, and now they use peer-to-peer score reviews so um, mm -hmm. nothing against them but that was always one thing that we wanted um, like s since now that we purchased Orcade uh, the venues are responsible for their machines and they're um, basically 
mm-hmm. if something's wrong, it's it's their fault. It's not necessarily the players. Um, if and right. everything has to be watched and scrutinized because, again, you have players traveling in from all over the world, and they want all the settings right. And there's always players that are going to try to cheat the system, mm-hmm. but that's what the scoring house is there and the referees are there to prevent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's their role. So yeah, they're, the onus is on them to kind of make sure they got, got the house in order there. Okay. No, it's a good perspective. Um, So in terms of games, like what's been one or two of your favorite games to bring the arcade or, or most difficult or or something like that. Uh, That's out of everything. (laughs) Yeah. I know. It's a big, (laughs) Um, Probably, um, we we put out our first Galpin Ghost production game uh, called Specter Files: The Death Stalkers. Okay, which was uh, a game uh, Brian Colin had started oh, yeah. back Rip in nineteen eighty four. Yep, yeah, he worked on so many great games: uh, mm-hmm. Xenophobe, Arch Rivals, yep. Pigskin. Yep. And he was telling us about this game that they started. It was supposed to be a laser disc game. And uh, I remember the morning he was telling, we were, um, it was Brian and Jeff Lee, who uh, the lead artist and creator at Qbert. Oh, wow. Uh, we're all having breakfast. And I'm, I'm asking them all sorts of questions and projects that didn't get made. And Brian started telling me about this game, Spectre Files. And just he was saying about it's supposed to be a B horror movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they shot it all on sixteen millimeter, and hmm. it it got canceled because it another game on uh, was put out that didn't earn. So they canceled all the laserdisc games that they were working on. Uh. and uh, just talking with them, it's like, well. You, do you have anything left? Like, is there any footage? And he's like, yeah, I found the, the cans of film instantly. We're like, okay, well we got to finish this game. (laughs) And uh, working with Brian, we, we did it. It's uh, a game that was never supposed to come out in 1984 came out last year. And, uh, Oh, wow. I'll have to check that out. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, we did a short run of, uh, 50 cabinets and mm-hmm. um, game like arcades all over game galaxy and game grid and uh, level 419 uh, have it at their venues now. So it's, cool. it's cool to see this thing that never was and uh, people are playing it nonstop. So it's, it wow. definitely is something unique. Like there's so many amazing games like primal rage two and, Contra mm-hmm. Evolution that have had Dragon Gun and so many that have had difficult, uh, just such unlikely they would ever end up in an arcade. Mm-hmm. And uh, to have them all here, it's just just awesome. Like, how do you get some of those games, right? Because like, <laughs> I, I I remember just being shocked that you had a Beavis and Butthead arcade game because that never came out. I was at Viacom in the mid nineties and we were working on Beavis and Butted games and we'd got one in for reference console versions and uh, PC games and stuff. And, um, wasn't very good. Um, at least the version <laughs> we had, um, but it was never, you know, released in arcades or anything. And, and then I see you guys have it and I was like, damn, how did they get this? I, I mean, at this point, as we're so large, uh, like the rare games, when people go to sell them, they usually come to us first. Ah, that um, makes sense now. They, wa- they want them shared where everybody can have access to them and play them. And, mm-hmm. um, in part, again, the connection to so many industry people uh, yeah. has helped so much. Uh, Brian Colin donated uh, RC Squared and International Team Laser, which were two one-of-one prototype games. Wow. Um, Beavis and Butthead was one that just kind of uh, happened along. Um, our friend mm-hmm. Jeremy Fox, who uh, re- he recently opened Prince Arcades out in Bolingbroke. Um, okay. He's been selling machines for years and 
over the years, we've bought so many games from that guy that when he would get something rare, we mm-hmm. were the first call he would make. Right. Um, and the Beavis and Butthead, it was, uh, there's only 12 of them made. And the guy mm-hmm. said he hadn't had it working in over, uh, it was like 20 years. And wow. we were able to, we got it running within 24 hours. As, as soon as we got it in, it became like, okay, this has to run again. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. was just so cool to get it out and have that um, wave of people like, oh my God, there's a Beavis and Butthead arcade game. Yeah. I think it was Atari, wasn't it? Isn't it Atari? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's funny too about machines. I have two non-functional Arctic Thunders here in my basement. Uh, I think I think it might be the CMOS battery because they were on um, Windows computers at that point. And uh, other one, the throttle's kind of screwed up, but when you worked on an arcade game, there were certain ones um, you had them out on test to see how they would earn, and then they could not turn around and tell, or excuse me, sell them to distributors because you know they weren't a uh, new product. Yeah. So we were able to basically pay um, for the cost of uh, tax and do paperwork, make it all legal on the up and up, and then um, buy those machines. Brian, Eddie, and I um, renting a u-haul and we went around we picked up four of them and then we <laughs> took two to his house and took two to my house and took off the railing and took out the front door and the garage and got them down in my basement and just barely cleared the ceiling when i tilted the thing up so uh, or them up so what are you curious about right now in the arcade industry um it's it's always interesting to see the new old games that people are finding and just stuff you've never heard of right um but it's it's definitely interesting to see if uh, how long the resurgence will continue for and where it'll hit. Um, like mm-hmm. getting new venues and new arcades and pinball places opening up all over the world. Uh, it's so many of the places that have produced arcade games have stopped, uh-huh. and it's like, what's it going to take for those? major companies start putting uh, out new games yeah right right yeah you know, the midways of the world right that which obviously they're not around anymore but they got out of it and yeah there are other companies that are still around that would maybe come back and um yeah well places um, like raw thrills yeah, and raw thrills play mechanics comes, right? they've kept the flames burning and yeah jarvis over there yeah he's definitely kept things kept things going yeah he's got some great stuff going on there but and indie companies have been mm-hmm. um just Working very hard, guys like the Cosmotrons and Sky Cursor and Killer Queen. Killer Queen, yeah, yeah, Killer Queen. Yeah. I've seen that more and more, and it and it's always being highlighted. GDC, and there seems to be a. It's definitely made an impact, and one of the things we hope to do with Dark Presence, it's uh, mm-hmm. as we're so open with um, sharing our numbers on the arcade side, we hope to do that too on the production side, which mm-hmm. uh, we want to show that it's. It's a viable thing. We've got a 40 arcade U.S. tour already planned. Wow. Places in Japan are already went wanting us to fly out and show the game off. So hmm. the demand, I think, is there. It's uh, Again, you've got 80,000 people coming here a year. Right. Uh, newer arcades opening and sustaining and thriving and growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the players are there. The venues are there. You just need the the final part, which is the developers start putting out more content. Pinball's gotten really big over in, in Europe and um, especially like in Finland and Germany and Denmark and things like that. It's, it's, it's really uh, grown and intensified. Oh, yeah. yeah. The collector market and like mm-hmm. I said, I've, I've seen so many containers of games going out uh, all over and uh, the interest is just the frenzied right now so yeah well and you, you look at like stern pinball right like they were on the brink there for a little bit and uh turned things around they, they brought in you know george gomez and and uh greg frares and charles Ernest and uh, people from from the uh, pinball days and brian eddie they're doing gangbusters right i mean they yeah. um I, I was there uh three four years ago walking around with george and you know i saw all these machines lined up and like half of them were marked you know, for going overseas. And he talked about, you know, that market and the, 
at the uh, home enthusiast market, right? Where they, they have these um, unboxing events and, and people record it and put it up on YouTube and um, how it's just had this resurgence. And it's, it's been gr- so great as somebody that grew up, you know, I, I lived during the Stranger Times days, right? Going to the arcade back in the 80s. And there used to be two arcades in my town that's not very big. And um, seeing them all die off and then thinking, well, that was, that was it. And, and, and now having this resurgence has been exciting. And um, yeah, it speaks to that human connection that you get when you, you know, play with, against somebody and it's, it's not online with some, you know, fortune else swearing like a sailor, but there's <laughs> actually this, you know, that environment of, of going to the arcade and, and, and playing games there and the tactile feel is, is really exciting. Okay, quick question break. What are your thoughts so far? Do you have a topic idea, a question to ask, or a guest suggestion? Let me know at 224-484-7733 or on the gamedevadvice.com website. Yeah, the, the community that we've seen, mm-hmm. like I lived in arcades growing up, and it was a very solitary, uh, I would just go by myself and play mm-hmm. and didn't talk to anybody and nobody talked to me and that was the way it was. Right now, it's so social, and yeah, people are uh, they've never met before, but people are recommending games to each other and mm-hmm. watching each other play, and that's always happened. But there's, I think, just with the the social media behind it, um, right. people come in knowing people at the arcade. Uh, some of them high scores, some of yeah. them just. Uh, recognizable personalities and Mm -hmm. it's it's different and uh, the uniqueness to it the social side i don't think it's ever been like this and because you can communicate more and the arcades it used to be so cutthroat from one another like if uh as Uh, far as the venues yeah now all the new places that we help uh, we encourage them. It's like run events with each other and uh, talk mm-hmm. about each other and point out the accomplishments that everybody else gets. And it's, it's made it so much stronger. Mm-hmm. And you look at the, what was considered the, the heyday of arcades. It, it was this small window and mm-hmm. like we've, we just had our nine, our ninth year anniversary and uh, places like Underground Retrocade, they're having their seventh year anniversary. So it's lasting longer than the heyday of mm-hmm. what people usually consider before the big crash. Um, so it's, it's fascinating and interesting times. I think, well, there's a lot of older perspectives out there. I think a lot of them have to be uh, kind of reevaluated and that was kind of the problem with arcades back in the day. They never evolved. Mm-hmm. It was always take coins and uh, yeah, tokens and yeah, yeah, and then on the cards. But it it didn't have that. Uh, the earnings were so important. Whereas if shifting to um, like an entry fee, you don't want people to leave. You you want them to try as anything and everything and it it changes Mm -hmm. the value of the games because you can take a game that people back in the day thought was a terrible game they can play it enough to realize that wow this is a really good game and all the old games have this new uh new sheen to them that everything is playable yeah no and that's a couple good points because the, the kind of unwritten rule the arcade development used to be three minutes a quarter. Right. And that was like that, that target window that they worked on. So it was like, sometimes they made him extra hard just to try and try and hit that point just to, um, you know, keep feeding the machines. And, and when it's open play and you can, you know, die over and over and over and over again and defender like I do. Um, <laughs> I, I love the game. I'm attracted just to the explosions and, and just, just the whole elements that everything about it is so much fun, but I, terrible at it but but now i can you know play it for longer without um 
pumping all the quarters in there as, as much as I did before. And uh, even, even that, like you look how the game design has changed from initially when games were coming out, it was make a cool game. Mm-hmm. And then it evolved to, okay, well, we've got to hit this window of where we're earning enough money. Mm-hmm. And plenty of good games were uh, just kind of sidelined just because of earnings. Yep. And now it's, you look at it, and it's so much more about um, making it engaging and getting the, the difficulty of the game has, have dropped uh, just so the players can make it through the content and nobody's getting frustrated. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just changed so much that uh, the arcade design has to be kind of reevaluated mm-hmm. if it's going to succeed. The games lived and died by how they went out on test and earned, right? Like, and there was a very small amount. And if the numbers weren't coming back at some certain threshold, you know, boom, that was it. And, you know, there there are probably lots, I'm I'm sure there are lots of great games that had they had a little more time to refine it or tweak it or or do something different, you know, they would have made it out in things. Plus, yeah, it's a good point of changing how to think about design for that when you're, if you're not looking to do that, 25 cents uh, or, or play, I should say now, because it, it became more than a quarter every three minutes. Like, what does that mean? And, and how does that change the design? And in terms of the acceptance, I think, I think it has been almost like a society shift, right? Like it was games are always considered like bad for you. And uh, if you go to the arcade, you're, you're a stoner or a burnout or, or you're wasting your life and there's just bad people there. I, I mean, it kind of talks to that point where, you had those laws that, uh, that you needed to work around, right? Because they put all these laws on the books, politicians and government and everything. So arcades is kind of like a menace and not something to embrace. And now those people are older and people maybe making the laws or, or looking at those things realize the value of games and know it's not a crime element uh, everywhere and all that kind of stuff. So I think they're more accommodating and more open to the idea of the value of games. And it's not just this evil thing that... Um, parents are terrified of and things like that again even in brookfield there was laws on the books that you could only have six coin operated machines in a building (laughs) uh so they came up all these creative ways to keep but you could have slot machines well yeah you know doing that and (laughs) fleecing people that way but yeah you can only have six arcade machines uh, together in a single space that's crazy well we've We've had to uh, go to several uh, city council meetings for arcades that we've helped um, Mm -hmm. to get these laws changed. Um, And we've been such an advocate. And it's understandable because they they remember back to the 80s when Mm -hmm. all those things were going on. But it's so different now. And we show, again, talking about 80,000 people a year We've not had one fight mm-hmm. um, in in nine years, uh, and That's great. the concerns about violence in video games. And I've I've done a lot of uh, panels on violence in video games. And mm-hmm. Mortal Kombat is such that was always kind of the uh, poster boy of yeah. what violent video games and the problems it would bring. Mm-hmm. Uh, our last Combat Con that we ran. We had 500 people that just love Mortal Kombat. And oh, yeah. I was there. I mean, the people all, all over the world yeah. were there. It was crazy. I was talking to these people from countries I'd never even heard of, you know, and they were there. But had you ever seen 500 people get along so well? Oh, no, totally. Yeah. Everybody was like <laughs> excited and like talking to each other and showing different things they had and bringing fan art. And yeah, it was such a very... Uh, open and communicative kind of like environment and people were, people were great. Yeah. But if, but that's the thing. It's like, if these violent video games are causing all the problems, this meeting of the Mortal Kombat fans (laughs) should be the apocalyptic epicenter of everything bad. And right. Yeah. It should have been fatalities happening in the parking lot. And yeah. Yeah. It should have been this horrible thing. And and, (laughs) yeah. yeah. And instead it was like, Everyone had a great time. They went back to your place, and then then you have Kung Lao pe- singing at the after yeah. party, and <laughs> right. Johnny it, Cage it, on backup vocals. It's right, <laughs> yeah. Everybody was just having a blast, eating pizza, having a drink, and um, 
yeah, that, that's that's a great that's a great point. You, you know, if it was uh, if it was all this danger, uh, evil doing, like all these horrible things would have happened. But there was actually this great community, you know, built around those games. Even you know, even that even the poster child that that, that they prop up, and and that's a whole other discussion about making gaming a scapegoat instead of other things. But um, yeah, well, it's um, it's been amazing to watch. Again, the evolution. Mm-hmm. I've I've seen people use the arcade mm-hmm. for to get through the worst times that they're dealing with, yeah. and I've seen it where it's taken uh, people who have social issues mm-hmm. and brought them out of their shell. Uh, myself, I used to have so much social anxiety. Um, I couldn't even get through high school. I had so much social anxiety. I, I went and became homeschooled. Mm-hmm. Um, I just couldn't deal with people. And yeah. the arcade was the production side initially, but definitely mm-hmm. the arcade. Like the thought of being on a podcast and that would have never, uh, never flown years and years and years ago. Um, yeah, look where you are now. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, watching it help people through they've lost a family member or mm-hmm. people who are drinking or the arcade is so much. And seven days a week, you can see families getting stronger and bonding over all these games. And mm-hmm. from That's the great. outside, it's just a building with arcade games. But inside, there's so much going on. It's a fascinating place just to sit back and kind of watch. Yeah, no, I, I never even thought about that. And that- that is really interesting. And just thinking from my own experience, I, especially in high school, was a bit of an introvert. So for me, that was sometimes I go with a buddy or two of mine. And other times I just, a lot of times just go by myself and just go out and just see what the new games were and just, you know, try and play. So yeah, there is, there's a lot going on there besides just, um, you know, pushing buttons, right? There's, there's all kinds of different layers of goes on in, with a video game or a cabinet that people don't think about at the surface level. So, yeah. Wow. What about threats, right? Like, is there concerns about getting oversaturated or new new laws coming on the books for something or, or booze in arcades are bad or any kind of thoughts on any of that kind of stuff? Or Right now, I think the only major concern, I, I see a lot of people trying to open arcades and that shouldn't. Um, I think there's an allure to it that... Um, I've I've seen a lot of people get crashed on the rocks where yeah. uh, they think it's going to be easy and they underestimate yeah. it. And easy money, right? Just buy a couple of machines and yeah, the money truck backs up, right? Yeah, uh, it's and we've we've advised people as much as we want to see arcades open. Mm-hmm. It is a difficult thing for us. It it was very smooth. It just everything fell right into place it was profitable eight months in Hmm. um it's consistently had growth it's it's not the uh regular thing to have happen and Hmm. i've seen people where you just tell them it's like oh please don't open it's not (laughs) it's not a competition thing it's it's you're not going to do well here the yeah uh, the vision isn't right for, and the hardest thing or location or yeah. Right. Well, and you even look at the, the location has, I would say less to do with it just because mm-hmm. uh, Brookfield, well, it's, it's close to the city. It's not in the city. No. Um, nobody's coming to Brookfield except for the zoo, right. unless you can make it a destination. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, then I don't think it matters where it is. They'll, they'll travel for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people, they just don't have the, it's a lot of different elements. Like yeah. wanting to see people enjoy games, um, collectors who can have great collections. Mm-hmm. They don't enjoy watching people play their games. They're worried about their games. It's, oh, like the like damage and wear yeah. and tear and stuff like that. Oh, okay, yeah. like we got uh, our our predator machine mm-hmm. uh, at pinball. We spent more on that than our first 
probably 400 video games. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and there's collectors that like, you guys are, you're putting that on the floor. You're out of your mind. Why, <laughs> how can you put that out there? Aren't you worried? And right. worry about all of them every day, but to see people enjoy it, mm-hmm. like that's, that's the best thing in the world. Not to go on a tangent here, but it, it kind of reminds me a little bit, um, Racing cars, race cars, right? Like collector cars, right? And, or, or collectible motorcycles. There, there are people that put it on a pedestal and, and never touch it or drive it or do anything with it. And, you know, that's fine to some degree. But at the other, you know, the other point is kind of like, well, they built them to race. They built them to be driven hard, use it for what it was for, and, and just fix stuff, uh, you know, as you go along the way. So, you know, I, I commend you for doing that and, and not just um, letting stuff kind of gather dust and but actually thinking about well you know what's let's think about the community here and let's let's think about what the real value these things bring and it's it's um not just being a collectible in someone's basement but actually people enjoying them and you know playing them or you know driving them kind of in that same sense if that makes any sense well in for us again having uh industry friends that we do mm-hmm. it's it's one thing to watch players play it but it's so satisfying to take a picture of Rampage and send it to Brian Colin and be like, Hey, look, 35 years later, people are still loving your game. Yeah. Or right. take a picture of on a Saturday night, have a giant crowd around the grid and mortal Kombat, and shoot yeah. it over to Ed Boone and right. Tobias and be like, look, it's, it's 25 years later and people are still losing their mind over this stuff. Mm-hmm. And to see them enjoy it means so much to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, from a creative level and a designer yeah. level. It's yeah. uh, you can only hope that you have a product that people love decades later. Yeah, uh, it stands, that stands the test of time, right? You, you Absolutely, know, that, and that it's totally satisfying. And it's funny you mentioned the grid because that was a game that um, the MK team worked on between MK4 and MK5 that came out right around when the arcades were really having the a tough time and um that game's a blast i mean we used to have tournaments there and played at the uh in the lunchroom at midway all the time and, and yeah. it was just a ton of fun but you know it was with less and less arcades around at that time and and to get the full experience needing four machines um you know it was a, a tougher tougher sell for the business side and um yeah the fact that you you have them and you're playing them and you're, you're letting people experience them is that's fantastic because that is that game's a lot of fun and um, it wasn't something that, you know, had the commercial viability of say like an MK or something. So, no, oh, that's, that's cool. You got those there. Yeah. That's, about three that's or four of them, right? Six. Six. Damn. We have all six get, licked. Man, I got to get back there. Uh, yeah. Cause I remember Todd Allen had one and um, he, he, uh, we got three cabinets from Todd. Cool. Um, one being the prototype, and then he donated uh, some development kits, which we have on display for everybody to see. Oh, cool. Yeah. Todd was a legend. Oh, yeah. He is a legend, I should say, just engineering. He's a genius. Um, yeah, and I remember there was uh, the IGDA does a, a holiday uh, party every year for charity, and um, we were at the Emporium in Chicago, and uh, Jarvis was teaching somebody how to play NARC. And uh, <laughs> I had to take a picture of that. And I'm like, here's the designer uh, f- who made this game. And he's teaching somebody that may have never even seen it before. And there two of them are sitting there playing uh, or stand there playing NARC, which was really cool to see. NARC, we had a uh, huge developer's day for NARC mm. and had everybody that worked on it out. And, oh, uh, very cool. Eugene was telling stories. and it, <laughs> Well, George, man, you see, you got to see. <laughs> yeah, Jarvis is awesome. George Petro, that NARC was actually the first arcade game I ever bought when I was 16. Cool. And uh, that's a good way to start. Absolutely. Uh, It was uh, the day before the event, George Petro called me up and he asked if he could uh, borrow, if I had a spare NARC board. Uh huh. And he's like, oh, just can you drive it out to my offices? So, yeah, sure. I didn't think anything of it, drove it uh-huh. out to him, went back to the arcade to work on uh, getting ready for the event, printing mm-hmm. stuff for those guys to sign. And yeah. 
um, he comes in the next day, the start of the event, and he's like, you know, there was a, a bonus level that made it out to test once, and wow. it crashed and um, turned it off. Yeah. And we we got rid of it. He's like, I I finished it. Here it is on this board. It's <laughs> it's now yours, and yeah. you're the only arcade that has it. Damn! Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that, that that game was. I I, I I just remember playing the arcade and just being like, never seen anything like this before. It was crazy. Oh yeah. Yeah. How so many great that? stories from that game. Yeah, it just right. Some of the inspiration, I'm sure that they came from that to develop that. And um, yeah, I, I remember the team, uh, Jarvis's team at Midway, you know, went on and did uh, cruising, which was phenomenal, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that, that game just did gangbusters, and they would go off and do these research trips and go to China and and you know take photography and do all this kind of stuff for um, for research for you know the game and when they were uh, in between machines and stuff and um yeah that's that's great how, how did you at 16 get an arcade machine that's that's impressive <laughs> uh it was my f- first paycheck from babbage's it was mm. uh <laughs> just had to have it yeah and, they, and, they weren't that bad if you're buying them second hand okay that makes sense and yeah for listeners i mean i know babbage's was kind of like GameStop before there was GameStop and it was yep. Charles Babbage was right. That was the full name or, or yep. uh, yeah. And they were normally in, in malls and a lot of uh, PC games and mega games and um, you know, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it was a place you would go to see what new games were coming out and, you know, buy a game for your Amiga or for your Apple IIe or something like that. So <laughs> What are your thoughts on AR and VR, right? Like a lot of the mobile stuff that's coming over to arcade, it's meeting kind of a, it's hitting a need, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's what the classic players want. Yeah. Uh, there's so many, like the VR stuff is amazing and um, the technology is just incredible, but there's, it's different. Like you can tell mm-hmm. a game that's been designed for a mobile platform that just gets thrown in an arcade cabinet yeah uh the coolest thing back in the day was uh when the arcades were pushing like the envelope of what the technology can do Mm -hmm. and vr is certainly doing that but it's it's different and the players uh like you can look back to the vr helmets that were coming out in the 16-bit era Mm -hmm. it it never clicked the yeah. way that they had wanted. And uh, eventually, sure, it might, but um, right. it's it's something that we're always watching, but it's it just hasn't hit it for, for me yet. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, too, is um, it used to be arcades were the cutting edge and, and the, the home versions were always, uh, uh, graphically especially, were a much poorer version of of the experience. So like, if you really wanted to experience a game, you went to the arcade cause that's, that's where the, the cutting edge was. And now, like, um, yeah. I think that was probably one of the biggest downfalls to, uh, the arcade scene was when they started looking at what the, uh, console hardware was and designing mm-hmm. for it instead of uh, people making these outrageous boards, like for right. games like NARC and, mm-hmm. uh, they would always be innovating and like, okay, well, how are we going to make this display uh, properly? And mm-hmm. you look at the limitations that they had yeah, and what they were doing with 16 colors and making this amazingly well-designed game. And mm-hmm. now it's the tools that are out there and the, it's, it's taken so much of the, complicated side out of it mm. but uh, i don't know yeah. it's hard to create a game that has that connection to the players like the classic games yeah and it's games can sell, you look at the new mortal Kombat; it's selling millions and millions of copies mm-hmm. but there's still something so iconic about those classic mortal Kombat games 
And mm -hmm. like now the player base is so much larger, but the games don't have the, you look at how long people play them for. Yeah. And again, like the classic games, they've stood the test of time. Whereas mm -hmm. the games that have been out a year, once the next iteration comes out, that previous one gets forgot about, forgotten about a little bit. Yeah. Again, talking to all these guys, all the developers, mm -hmm. initially it was like they've, they've made a game and they want to make something completely different. They don't want to remake the same game. They don't want to make a sequel. Right. They want to make something new. Right. And now the budgets are so big and right. yeah. they've, it, it's safe to put out in eighth in the series or a ninth in the series or mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So I'm sure you got a ton of them, but kind of share like a funny or odd story about owning the biggest arcade in the world. We've had, there's been a lot <laughs> uh, just hearing all the stories about why people are traveling in. Um, like we right. had a couple that hitchhiked from Oregon. <laughs> really? Uh, they heard we had primal rage too. And <laughs> they made this, this huge, like, wow. uh, like not that we're advocating hitchhiking in, <laughs> but I didn't know like, people did that anymore. <laughs> yeah, like how wild is that just to come right. play an arcade game? Wow. Uh, that's yeah, crazy. That's always one that just stands out is uh, just absolutely amazing. Huh. Uh, but the lengths that people go to, uh, like mm -hmm. we've had friends, uh, friends that have come in from Japan and mm -hmm. uh, it, we were working on, I was in the back working on um, – on a game, mm -hmm. uh, getting it ready for the floor. And one of my guys came running back. He's like, I'm so, he's freaking out. He's like, I'm yeah. so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And I'm like, what, what'd you do? What's going on? <laughs> Which break? <laughs> what was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I just charged Toru Iwatani to get into the arcade. <laughs> the creator of Pac-Man. Oh, wow. And he's he's like, I gave him his money back. I apologized a million times already, and <laughs> and I'm I'm like I'm first freaking out that Toru Watani is here. Yeah, I'm right. so happy that my guy recognized who Toru Watani was. It was like, mm -hmm. wow, that's that guy's really on point there. Right. <laughs> but he, wow. just watching him walk around the arcade, and he had an interpreter with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, That's very cool. he was sending people pictures in Japan of all the cabinets. He was like going from cabinet to cabinet, oh, taking right. pictures. And I was so excited to talk to him. Totally. Uh, and just, uh, hmm. he just said it was an amazing arcade, which was so, so humbling. Uh, Right. It's it is. It's always humbling to talk to the people that made these amazing games that can bring people in from all over the world, mm -hmm. and they dig the place. So it's yeah. a weird circular thing going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's got to be give you a great sense of satisfaction just working on a game and growing up in arcades and and now you know being exposed to stuff like that. That's that's fantastic. That's great. Yeah, it's it's been so interesting talking to so many industry people who think that nobody wanted to hear from them and nobody wanted to meet them, and mm -hmm. I, especially at the first combat con or Shang Tsung's fight night, uh, they were all of the MK actors were very like yeah they were great who's they were initially they were like nobody's going to come to this like who's going to want to talk to Philip Bond or John mm -hmm. Parrish or Daniel Piscina. Mm -hmm. And they didn't realize that they had this huge fan base out there. Oh yeah. Uh, same thing with guys like Jeff Lee and Brian Cohen and Scott Mikulski, mm -hmm. like all these guys have Oh Scott the artist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh we we took like Paul uh Niemeyer, uh mm -hmm. who worked on uh a lot of the cabinet art he did the mortal Kombat and uh satan's hollow and 
I remember that. Yeah. It it took two years to convince him to come out. <laughs> and and once he did, it was like turning a switch on. It's like, oh no, you have this huge fan base and people have been wanting to talk to you. They might not know your name, but mm-hmm. they want to talk to you. And yeah. it's so cool seeing everybody in the industry get uh, the reaction uh, and the, uh, the appreciation that they've always been deserved. Yeah. And um, just speaking from firsthand experience, right? Like I, I remember when you invited me to the event and I'm like, what? Who wants to talk to me? Right. I mean, I, I, I did spreadsheets and stressed out about dates. Like there's none of my art in this game or there's none of my code or design. You know, I was kind of more behind the scenes, but, um, so yeah, I don't know. It felt, it felt kind of weird to me, but then when I went and it was so cool just to see people come up and talk about the game and, and want my signature and, and to talk about deadly lines or deception or, or things like that. And, um, just to see that passion there. And, uh, and I was like, Oh wow. Okay. That, that's kind of makes sense. And um, <laughs> I, I don't know why I, I thought that way, but no, that was really cool uh, to experience that. Just thinking back to how long ago that was when I worked on it and kind of all the stuff that you did back then. And then like people are still excited and embrace that. And uh, yeah, it was cool. to Cool. To experience that. It's always been kind of uh, like, that was always the thing I've always wondered. It's like, who's made all these crazy games. Mm-hmm. And why aren't why aren't they all household names? Uh, and that was yeah. with like for movies. There's you right. always see in the uh, the sandwich shop or the restaurant. They'll have all the uh, celebrities and movie stars and directors that have frequented right. the establishment. The press photos and yeah, yeah, autographs and stuff like yeah. Where are all the designers and uh, game developers? Yeah, that's uh, another thing. With uh, we've got our industry celebrity wall and mm-hmm. you're, you're up there and <laughs> it's uh it, it's yeah. part of it to get people to know who's made like the games that they've loved for 35 years it's mm-hmm. uh, the people that have made these games are to video game players they're so much more important than the movie stars or the directors and they've just never gotten the the just do uh and the accreditation that they should yeah no that's an interesting point yeah because yeah you you think about all the fame and celebrities out there and um and and how they impact people's lives but you know a lot of times they're just pop stars that fade away and nobody cares later and um these people that make these games that resonate with periods of people's lives or or currently in their lives now and, and there's so much value and and just memories around that that they they're, they're getting that respect now and, and people are excited to reach out to them and stuff that, and you're, you're highlighting that, right? You're, you're, you're making a showcase there and you've got the arcade and it, it is ways that people who always loved a game can go there and, the, you know, you could talk to people that worked on that game and, and learn about stuff that um, went into development. Like, oh, that's why that level plays like that. Or, yeah. oh, I had no idea the inspiration for this came from that and all those kind of things to hear kind of the, the stories behind there you know, are exciting. And in some ways, this is a little bit what this podcast is about. It's kind of telling the stories of game developers um, and what they've done and, and how they've done it and kind of what goes on behind the scenes. So um, yeah, it's kind of full circle for, for all of us. Yeah. Where can people find you online? You know, website, Twitter, things like that, social media. Yeah. Uh, we're on pretty much everything. You can uh, check us out at uh, Galping Ghost Productions. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got a, Facebook group that uh, has a lot of engagement. Then our Galping mm-hmm. Ghost Arcade page got websites for everything. Uh, Galping Ghost Arcade on Instagram, and mm-hmm. uh, I think it's yeah. Galping Ghost Arcade on Twitter as well. If I'm yeah, not mistaken. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll links um, in the show notes too. And yeah, if you go on the main website, I remember seeing at the top there, you've got links to Instagram and Twitter and all those kind of things. People can click on those and they can, they can learn more about this arcade. So if you're anywhere within the 3000 mile radius of Chicago and uh, play video games, you, you need to check this place out. It's, um, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's jaw dropping. I remember the first time being there and just being like, holy shit, look at all of these games and like these <laughs> games 
that I haven't seen in decades and, and I can actually play them. It's, it's, they're not full of cigarette butts and broken joysticks. You know, it's, it's just such a, um, such a great place to go and spend a day and go by yourself, go with friends, maybe take your family, show, you know, take, take your, your kids there and they get to see and experience these kind of games um, that you played and uh, see that magic, you know, happen at the arcade that, they, they can't duplicate on a, on a phone or a iPad and stuff like that. So yeah. I can't uh, recommend this place enough. Everyone, I'll, I'll have links in the show notes to check this uh, Galloping Ghost out. Cause I guarantee if you're listening to this podcast and you go to Galloping Ghost, you will not be disappointed. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thanks for listening to this episode of game dev advice, the game developers podcast. If you found it interesting or helpful, please leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. I have a lot of great episodes coming out. As always, I want to hear from you, the game development community. So give me a call at 224-484-7733 or reach out on the website, gamedevadvice.com. I want to know your struggles, your questions, and your ideas. Since the podcast is really about you, the fellow game developer, and our game development community. Thanks and take care.